All right, hey folks, and welcome back to the 747 Club podcast, 747 Conversations. It's your host, Chris Shembra, broadcast live from beautiful New York City, and I'm honored to be sitting with my dear friend, Dara Brustein. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, what city are you calling from? Because you are all over the world. This is true. Today I'm in my hometown of it. Well, my adopted hometown of Atlanta. Well, thank goodness for that. The comfort of your own home. Now, right. as uh, Darren and I connected a few months ago on, on so many beautiful topics. And to start us off, I want to ask you a question about now that we're talking about hometowns. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to who helped shape you. Who would that be? My parents are going to be really mad at me, but I'd say my first nanny. <laughs> Perfect. And and she was with you when you were how old? So we had nannies that lived with us my whole life, but I think of our first live-in nanny, Cindy, as the one who was so formative for me. And I believe I was so little that she was with us maybe from about kindergarten or first grade until fifth grade when we moved from Philadelphia to Baltimore. And she was, she, well, your both your parents are still in the picture, but why, why was it so important to have a nanny growing up? My mom has always been an entrepreneur and my dad was very involved in his career. And we lived about 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia and they spent a lot of time both at work and traveling so having three kids at home with a heck of a commute and a busy corporate and career life, it was really important for them to have someone around full time to support us as well. And and above and beyond having three kids, one of those was a or two of those was a set of twin. <laughs> That's your, right. Uh, your your twin brother. Did you, which you've co-founded a company with? Did you? Were you always naturally gravitated to him as a kid? And, and how did that third sibling play into everything? We have a really unusual dynamic of siblings. I think when you study the dynamics of birth order, we are so out of touch with that in so many ways where I, I am technically the middle child being the elder twin by three minutes and having an older brother. But my older brother went off to boarding school when he was in sixth grade and I was in second grade. So he was a bit of what I like to call a long lost cousin slash brother, where he was gone for pretty much all of my childhood out of state and then went off to college and then lived in Tokyo for close to a decade. So it actually wasn't until I was in my mid to late 20s, I believe, that we lived back in the same city when he happened to move to Atlanta to work for Coca-Cola. And then my twin brother and I I've come to find that with all the other opposite sex fraternal twins that I know that there's a different connection between fraternal twins than there is for identical twins and especially for opposite sex versus same sex twins. So my twin Garrett and I were never super close. We were actually quite opposite in every way you can imagine from height. He was very short. We called him shrimp. They said I smushed him in the womb. He was six inches shorter than I was my whole life until he had a growth spurt. And he was, our, our personalities were polar opposites. He was very shy and very introverted. Uh, he had the same couple friends his entire life, and that was plenty for him. 
he didn't like to explore and learn and grow and travel. And those are some of my favorite things. So we, we naturally weren't very close as children, but as you can imagine being in business yourself, it's what has made for such a great partnership is our opposite personalities and skill sets. And you got very good at meeting new people at such a young age and you know, you're, you're self-proclaimed, um, uh, a leisure traveler 60% of the year. Uh, did you, did you know that you were going to bounce around a lot when you were a kid? Um, you know, you, you moved a couple times as a kid, but did, did that, was that part of your goal back then? No, I don't think I understood. And frankly, I was sort of an, a brat where my parents would take us on trips and I would be really annoyed thinking, oh, why do we have to go to another museum or see this cultural site? And now I love it and crave it and can't get enough of it. But back then I was just this annoying little kid who felt like it was an inconvenience and I wasn't into it unless it was a theme park or a beach or a ski trip. And it didn't occur to me that travel would be something that I cared so much about. But over the years, as I gained my own independence and got to know more about what I really valued and saw how travel dovetailed so much with that it became more and more part of what I wanted to design my life to look like. Now, were you extroverted to the point where anybody needed to rein you back? Or was anybody ever fearful of your creative energy? (laughs) It's interesting. When I was younger, I was definitely a full-blown extrovert. And as I've gotten older, I've moved down the scale closer to an introvert. So now I consider myself a solid ambivert, but I was never so outgoing and so extroverted. And I know those are two different things, but I was never so highly either. I felt like it was just enough to be social and have lots of different groups of friends and to have lots of extracurricular activities and balance them all well without exhausting myself. The, um, in, in, uh, Scott Gerber and Ryan Paw's new book, um, Super Connector, they they say that a connector, uh, you don't want to be known for just anything. You want to be known for something you care about and what you want others to care about. You want to understand the real value you have to offer instead of the value you think you need to deliver. When When did you start realizing your value? Um, either as a kid, a teenager, or as you were growing? That's really interesting. And I need to read their book. They're mutual friends of ours. So that's an interesting point I'd love to read more about. When I was 23, I vividly remember a conversation with a friend from college. And we were sitting on campus. I went back to visit him. And he pointed out to me how unique of a trait I had where he said, you're just such a natural curator and connector of people in a way that is so special and so unique and is such a gift. And it stopped me in my tracks because to me, it just seemed like everyone could do that. It's something I had always done. It came very naturally to me. And it also was something no one had ever identified before as different or unusual And I think like many people, that which comes quite naturally to you is often the thing which we underestimate or take for granted. And also when you have a skill or a gift, that's not the thing that is loudly applauded. 
through schooling or sports or other arenas where it's really clear that you have a talent that we can quantify, you often feel, or I'll speak for myself, I often felt left in the dust a bit. Like I often felt that I was pretty good at a lot of things, but I wasn't exceptional at any of them when it came to academics and sports and other things where I could get by and I had a 4.0 and, you know, always did well, but was never the top. So when he said that to me, it made me really analyze, especially being at the beginning stages of developing a career and an adult life, what that meant and how one could really grow with that and contribute more of it to the world in a way that would fulfill me because it's something that gives me so much energy and gratification, but also adds so much value, like Scott and Ryan mentioned in Super Connector, to other people. And so what was the first step you took to kind of actualizing that value you had inside yourself? It's been a journey. And, you know, anytime you say, how did you identify your own value? I have to admit that it's it's a question that I'm constantly asking myself and sometimes still struggle with. I think, you know, one, being a woman, often you're told that your value is based on certain things like your looks or otherwise that kind of create a voice in your head. And then secondly, when you're someone who's so married to growth and personal evolution, you kind of assume maybe that'll change or grow in some way. So so it's not always a straight answer for me. But to answer your question, I don't remember entirely precisely how it happened, but I do know that I just was able to then continue to do more of what I loved in that way, even if it wasn't professionally. So you know, I was constantly hosting dinner parties or hosting theme parties and gatherings at bars or planning group trips or whatever it was, even if it was just a coffee meeting for a couple people who needed to know each other. And so I, I do remember when I started the company with my twin brother when we were 25, that I decided to join certain organizations in Atlanta to get myself more acquainted with the business community, one of which was the Chamber of Commerce. And I went there and at first was super intimidated because most of the people there were around my parents' age and they were pretty seasoned in their careers and knew what they were doing. And I had no clue that I was just figuring it out. But I realized very quickly that if I could capitalize on this thing that I really was naturally good at and enjoyed doing, which was connecting the dots and adding value through doing so and seeing where the puzzle pieces fit together for other people in a way that they maybe didn't see or didn't have the connection to draw together, how quickly that built relationships and created depth and an ingratiation of folks to me, and not in a manipulative way, just in a way that I felt like if I have anything to offer here, this is going to be it. And so I just kept building on it and tried to stay as patient as I could. And, you know, that has just ballooned over the years into something that I deeply believe in as a foundation for the way that I live. And as as uh, knowledgeable as you are of your unique gifts, I know one of the things you value is the inner work that people must do to uncover what you want. What is that what does that process look like and how has that changed throughout your life? Yeah, thank you for touching on that because I think we often are slapped with headlines or catchphrases or whatever that make us feel like we should just know or you should follow your passion or there should be this voice inside you, but we don't often know the skills or the strategies to uncover that and also to be patient with ourselves and kind to ourselves to know that that will change over time and that we need to constantly be listening and that we need to sometimes quiet the outside voices and noise from other people or even our own inner critic to determine what that is. 
So when I was younger, I think I listened probably way too much to outside guidance. Whereas now I think I'm a lot better at being discerning about who the outside voices are that I let into those processes and thoughts and then putting them through a sieve and letting it sit with my instinct or my intuition. And then secondly, just having access to my instinct and intuition in the first place. So the primary tool that's helped me tap into that is meditation, which has become super accessible, whether it's through apps or through like Deepak Chopra and Oprah's 21 day free series, which they're about to relaunch or any number of other ways of just sitting and being quiet or going to classes or taking a transcendental meditation course, which is something that I did. Um, but just finding time, I try every morning to get up and sit quietly for 20 minutes in some form of meditation And there's plenty of days where I feel like, man, that was pretty useless. My brain was just going nuts. But that's part of the practice. And it helps me to just slow down a little bit so that when life starts throwing you so many things throughout the course of your day, you have this stability internally and this sort of inner GPS to know what really lands for me and what feels right and what doesn't. More than anything, when I look back at moments in my life or my career, when something went awry, I realize always it was because I didn't listen to that guidance and I can always pinpoint the moment where I knew I was going astray, but I was trusting data or I was trusting someone else's word or I was trusting a trend and I wasn't trusting myself. Uh, So those are just some of the maybe larger scale things. And then there's just a ton of other exercises and practices around a number of other things from ways I goal plan and vision to ways that I have asked really specific questions to my network to help them help me see myself, um, which I've published and be happy to share with the listeners because I think sometimes it's those around you who can see your own spot, whereas you can't see your own shadow. So it's really nice sometimes, like I said, to be very critical and thoughtful about whose voices you let in, but to ask them for thoughtful feedback. Now, the interesting thing about what you just said with you know, listening to the perspectives of those around you. There's an old biblical quote of, uh, there's no profit in a man's own land. Those that are the closest to you will see your growth the slowest. Now, one way of um, overcoming that is by utilizing the strength of weak ties. That wonderful 44-page sociological study done by Stanford University that argues that vital information is best passed through social networks through weak connections. How do you utilize weak connections in this learning environment that you just spoke of? That's a great question. I think that there's a variety of ways to do it, but if I'm going to use a weak connection to do it, I'm also going to put them through the sieve a lot more actively than I'm going to put someone who knows me well. On the one hand, it's those who don't know you well who can be the most candid with you because there's less fear or apprehension around being direct. They have less capital or social capital on the line to be afraid of whatever your response might be. So sometimes that can really work in your benefit as long as you're really open to transparency from whatever they might say. Um, But in other cases, I'd say I don't fully use weak ties to shed this light on me in deep ways. I think it can be really helpful in more passing ways. Like I can have, let's say, an introductory coffee meeting with someone and they can point something out to me as a strength or even an area of improvement in in a way that I haven't even asked them to, but they draw it to my attention in a way that perhaps I'm not going to get it from someone who sees me more day to day because it's so 
become something they're accustomed to. You know, you, your analogy is so interesting and it makes me think of weight loss that it's so hard for people around you and for you yourself to notice if you're losing weight because they're there all the time versus if someone never sees you, they're going to see the dramatic difference. Um, but I don't necessarily think that using weak ties is always going to be the best strategy for personal development from a direct access, from a direct way of asking them for the feedback or the input, unless again, you have the ability and the know-how to say, I'm going to take this with a huge grain of salt. Hmm. Now taking that grain of salt and broadening it into the entire salt mountain <laughs> you you are really building something as as you say is a a life by design not by default and the way i look at your life is i, I call it well what dory clark a great author and friend of ours calls a portfolio career you know you you were laid off 3 times in 3 years by an employer you lost a, a settlement with your landlord, and then you decided to become an entrepreneur. But you didn't stop there. You became a multi-time entrepreneur, founding you know, financial literacy initiatives for kids, a giving an initiative to impact a million people. What is so important about having your hands in so many pots? I don't know that I would say it's important per se to everyone. Like I wouldn't blanket a statement saying everyone should have their hand in a ton of pots. I would say though, people should probably have their hand in at least two pots. And that's just simply from the experience of watching an economy rise and collapse and knowing that we don't live in a world anymore where the loyalty of an employer to an employee or vice versa is any longer what it used to be, that people don't generally have lifelong careers in one company like they used to. So whether or not you're an entrepreneur, which obviously has its own clear built-in challenges or risk profiles, they also exist, in my humble opinion, in corporate America or in any type of job where you're an employee. There are just no guarantees. So I think one, just from a hedging your bet standpoint, it can be really great to have a side hustle or to have a couple of things that add up to your full time. But also too, I just think from a creative energy standpoint, that unless you are so blessed to have one role that you perform every day that taps into every one of the things that makes your brain and your being and your energy soar and learn and grow and you know be exercised then I think it's really great to have things that do that. And so, you know, for example, when I started my first company in credit card processing, I felt like the side of my brain that loved to write was atrophying. So I decided to just start a personal blog to keep that muscle moving. And then because of that, that parlayed into other outlets saying, hey, we really like your writing. Will you write for us? Which parlayed to bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where now it's with Forbes and other major outlets. But that was never the goal. The goal was the why. It was, I want to write. I enjoy writing. I want to keep that practice and that muscle moving. And so that's why that one started. And then, you know, as someone who just, one, is so addicted, frankly, to growing and two, who, you know, is quick to get bored of something once I have it down pat, it makes for this interesting storm of 
always wanting to solve a problem when I see it, which is also the entrepreneurial mindedness that I just have intrinsically. So for example, with the financial literacy books for kids, that simply came out of watching our economy fall apart around 2008 and saying, what can I do to make sure in my own way that I can contribute to making this not happen again? And I wasn't ever saying, no, we're never going to have a financial downturn or collapse. That would not be something I felt was in my power to do. But I did see a problem and thought, what can I do to contribute to the positive change around this? And as someone who'd always been a personal student of financial literacy and someone who loved to write, I put those things together to find a hole in the marketplace where people weren't speaking directly to a generation of kids when they were first starting those habits. So some of these things were never an intention of, hey, I've got to have my hands in like 17 things. But it was, I see a problem. I'm able to carve out the energy and the time to make this a priority, which sort of leads me to a sidebar comment of the term busyness or I'm too busy is one of my biggest grievances because we all have the same amount of time. It ultimately comes down to what are you willing to prioritize? So it always is really about, are you willing to create capacity and say yes to something and no to something else? And that's what I think is the constant evolution for me of how do I keep doing the things that I think make an impact in the ways that I'm able to do it to contribute more than I extract from this world while I'm here. And if that means doing a handful of different things, so be it. But that's what it's been. And so it's, it's ultimately, I'd say the Cliff's Notes version of that entire statement <laughs> is it gives me the opportunity to exercise a lot of different things within my own self and personality while contributing to challenges that I see around me. And then lastly, to sort of hedge and make sure that as I've had happen in my businesses and in my career, that rugs get pulled out, you know, clients leave, companies fire you or lay you off and things don't always go in an upward trajectory or or a linear one. So to have some, even if it's just perceived security of knowing that my hand is in a few different pots and there's revenue generated from a bunch of different ways, then all of those are the reasons why I think having a portfolio career can be a really great idea. Now, you mentioned being able to see opportunities and and holes in the marketplace. What's the next great challenge that you're, you know, looking to tackle your hands around? So I'd say it's two things. One, it's really a personal mission to talk, especially to millennials, as they're still in the earlier stages of designing their lives and their careers, to help them understand that, one, we don't have to define success the way that it's been handed to us and therefore chase other people's versions of it, or what I'd like to say, just going after the status quo. And, you know, I spent many years chasing after that and checking the boxes, and that wasn't fulfilling. So helping people understand that, one, you can create and design a life of your own choosing, and then, two, helping them to access the strategies and mindsets and other things that might be helpful to get there, um, just because I think it's important and it's how I've been structuring my life and finding so much fulfillment in doing so. And then two, having come from a electronic payment financial services background, I see a lot of opportunity as I think you do too, Chris, in blockchain and cryptocurrency. And I am definitely looking to start parlaying my expertise in the one field into the other. It, you know, it's interesting. I was at a an event last night. We were talking about this and the the event was titled AI Blockchain in the Matriarchy. And how blockchain could disrupt the patriarchal, hierarchical, 
capitalistic system that we've built for ourselves that's only about 5,000 years old. Before this, you know, many civilizations lived under a, a matriarchal um, kind of rule. You know, it was uh, there were the, the goddesses and the priestesses and, and people worshipped them and they bared life. Before I, I get into asking you about blockchain, AI, and the matriarchy, <laughs> I want to ask you about your Nona. And you, you mentioned Nona before, you, uh, before we press record. What would she say about what you're up to these days? Well, for anyone who doesn't speak Italian, Nona means grandmother. <laughs> true, <laughs> true. Sorry. Chris and I happen to both speak Italian, not because <laughs> I am Italian, but because I studied it. Um, I called her Bubby. She was my Jewish grandmother. Um, you know, honestly, it's an interesting question I've never thought about. And now that I think about it, it's pretty interesting because my grandmother, probably like yours, lived through the Depression era. And unlike, I think, a lot of people in her generation, prioritized her career, I think, beyond anything else, even her family and her children, which was probably super unique. And she was a very successful entrepreneurial woman. And even had so much gumption as to when she was about 80, she moved from suburban Connecticut to midtown Manhattan and decided to take a job at the jewelry counter at Bloomingdale's because she just wanted to be in the mix and in the energy. So I would hope that my Nana slash Bubby would be really proud thinking and seeing that, you know, I'm going out into the world and doing my thing and being a career woman and, you know, debunking the status quo just like she did. She she sounds like what was her name by the way? Deborah. Deborah. Well, she sounds like an amazing woman, and she sounds like a woman who uh, work is really what fulfilled her. And that the minute she stopped working, then she had you know she would have been you know losing her purpose or something. And the question I have following that is where does Dara the entrepreneur stop, and where does Dara the woman? And, and relationships, and w- where does that begin? What is that work-life balance? I am a deep believer in integration over balance. And what I mean by that is rather than putting two things on opposite sides of the scale and trying to make them both work, I like to bring things into a beautiful integration so that things don't exist in silos or buckets. So they are two separate entities, but they are also beautifully one. And I I always say, and I think you would agree with this, Chris, just what I know about you and our similarities and the way we view relationships is that we live in a time where you can truly be your full self in every arena and environment. So the person you are, people ask this all the time, like, should should I post this on Facebook or LinkedIn? Like, is that too personal? I truly believe that the person that you are on social media should be the same person that you are in business, should be the same person that you are in your relationships and with your family and with strangers. And while you're not going to open up and share the same amount of depth necessarily in each one of those situations, hopefully you are an authentic and integrated version of everything throughout them. So... I fortunately don't feel like there's a put on the entrepreneur hat and then put on the woman hat and put on the girlfriend hat and put on the daughter hat. While I have to lean in or ease into some of those environments a little differently than others, I try really hard to be an integrated same person in all of those environments. Yeah, you're you're really speaking to the uh, going away with the, the mindset of duality. Mm. which is uh us versus them you know it's a uh it's a we 
kind of thing. Um, actually, the concepts of duality came up last night at the AI conversation when people were challenging uh, reframing of the language that it's not AI is them and we are we, but why can't we be one? Why can't we be together and, as you say, integrated? Um, now, to ask about your integration within your community, how important is your community? I mean, it, not only did you build a business around community, but what does community really mean to you? Community is everything to me. I deeply believe that you are the outcome of the people you surround yourself with. And and it's never meant to be something that speaks down to people, but it's really just about the importance of surrounding yourself with people who have similar goals or aspirations, but not in a, not in a vacuum, meaning you don't only surround yourself with people who think the exact same way, yet you should make sure that the people, for example, the idea of the top five that you have around you need to be positively influential to you and be bringing you up as much as you bring them up rather than holding you back or keeping you stagnant. And then beyond that, you know, there's studies around you have your inner circle of five and then your outer circle of 50 and then your larger community of 150 beyond that. And that's about the maximum total group that you can stay in touch with, say, some studies, give or take. But I think that's so essential because not only is it helping you to evolve and grow, but for me, for example, it shows me what's possible. So when I bring people into my world or my life and I'm privileged to have them in my community who are doing things that inspire me or that I didn't even think were fathomable or once dreamed of doing and I'm watching them, it gives me the motivation and the access to not only think that it's possible, but to, to then start achieving it. So the access part, I think, is really critical too, because it truly is through the people that you know that doors and windows open that you didn't even see existed because there was no advertisement for them. So there are often these invisible entryways that people open for you because they trust you, they like you, they enjoy spending time with you, and they want to bring you along with them. And typically, much like you do, Chris, with your dinners and just who you are in the world, it's because you're someone that's generous and curious and gives value. And you never do it, as I said earlier, in a manipulative fashion. And I'm using you specifically as well as the general you here, the vu, if we're if we're speaking <laughs> French, or the boy if we're speaking Italian. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think ultimately the community is what's going to make you successful in your way of defining that, whether it's, you know, in the learning, in the growth in the supporting you emotionally and in the access to open doors to opportunities that you either knew existed or didn't. And what's the difference, you mentioned access before, what's the difference between analog access and digital access? What's the difference between, as you say, real life human experiences lead to individual happiness? What are, you know, how does that play? Have we gotten too connected digitally these days? Yes and no. I think there's always too much of a good thing. And I think digital tools are really wonderful. And I feel very grateful to be living in an age where we have them as someone who cares so deeply about pouring into and managing and maintaining my relationships. 
like I think of LinkedIn and Facebook as living, breathing CRMs, or as some people may not know that term, customer relationship management tools, basically living, breathing Rolodexes that other people are updating so that when I'm curious what they're up to or trying to figure out, oh, I'm going to San Francisco, who who lives there, that I can easily find that information out and reach out and stay in touch with them. And it also is great because it keeps people and you for others so top of mind. But again, like anything, you don't want to overconsume it. You want to make sure that you're not forgetting to practice the basics, that there's things that have been tried and true for eons, like being in real human form and human connection with people, whether it's over meals or out and about or you know, even a phone call, these things that seem so, like you said, analog, which I hope never goes out of style because they're ultimately always going to be the ways that you, if you're looking for a quote unquote hack, hack relationships. Like that's really where you invest to get the biggest rewards and dividends. And one of the uh, articles you wrote recently, the 55 best questions to ask to break the ice, which went viral on uh, Forbes, a couple hundred thousand views. What did people react the most to that article. Why 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 are they so fervent about that? I think on the one hand, people are so afraid to talk to people. Like one of the biggest challenges that I see people have when they come to our network under 40 events, which are a couple time a month events in a number of mid-tier US cities, is they're so scared. And even when we produce and curate an environment where everyone is there explicitly to meet one another on a peer-to-peer level, people are really nervous. And I don't mean to devalue that. So what I want to do instead is create an article like that that says, here's a way to tackle that fear and to come prepared into any environment, whether it's in an event or at a lunch or meeting someone in the grocery store line or on an airplane or wherever, and ask questions of, as I said, in their different levels of intensity, so mild, medium, or hot. You are someone who loves the hot questions, the real deep and vulnerable ones. And really allow something like that to break the ice. And then the second part of the article is break the ice and really get to know someone. Because I think as much as often people dance on the surface and they ask the questions which are my least favorite, like how's the weather or what do you do right out of the gate, which make me feel like we're not really connecting or in some cases like I'm feeling minimized and they only want to know about what I do because they want some transaction from me. Instead, I think we all deeply crave to be known and to be accepted and to be loved and to ask questions, Not again, not to say jump right in, get to know someone and ask them the deepest question that you can imagine, but to move in that direction so someone feels safe to open up and be even just the most little bit vulnerable, that's where connection sparks and that's where bigger things happen as a result. I I would challenge everyone listening to think of a time that they had a surface level conversation with someone or a transactional interaction with someone that led to an actual relationship. And then think about the times when they created relationships and what really was the catalyst for that. It was probably a meaningful conversation or environment that set the tone and energy correctly. And then what was the outcome of that? Probably very different than a lighthearted, or not even lighthearted, but transactional type surface interaction. And and I ask you um, on that vulnerability topic, uh, I got this from Miranda July, a wonderful artist who spoke at Summit last year. If, if there was a compliment, not that I advocate people go out seeking compliments, 
what's what's a compliment that you wish you heard about you more often? Like what's an underappreciated aspect of your life that you're really proud of that you wish people would give you? That's so tough. One, as someone who is learning constantly how to better accept a compliment. <laughs> yes. That is a tough one. But I think in general, it means so much to me when someone comes back and thanks me for an introduction that I made, even if it went nowhere, just to let me know, one, that they did something about it, and two, that it mattered to them. And then certainly if something great happened, that I love to hear the fruits that came of that simple introduction. So, you know, that's something that I just think in general, I'd love for more people to just create as part of their ritual or routine to make sure in a follow-up strategy that they let the person who introduced them to someone know what happened, even if it's at multiple different points in the outcome, because that really matters. Like that makes me feel great. And that's one of the things that pro propels me to continue to do it. Is that a, is that a, uh, a normal plight of a connector is that they've, they get forgotten about. I love that you asked that as if you don't know. <laughs> yes. As if I'm, I'm on the floor crying about it right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's certainly not a woe is me. Oh my gosh, no one's telling me, but no. it, it does go a long way, not only for the reasons I said, but also for me to engender continued trust in making more of those introductions for someone when they go out of their way to let me know, even just in a quick email saying, Hey, Chris and I connected and here's what happened. And thank you so much. That really matters. And I am not alone. I've heard it from many a connector that they <laughs> wish more people would circle back and close the loop and let them know. The uh, the 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 plight of the connector is is felt heart heart deep on this end of the conversation. <laughs> no, but it's. I mean, it did did that ever? I mean, did that ever lead to any kind of uh, like a negative affect in your life? Like having having these kind that that kind of feeling. Not explicitly. I mean, certainly there's been situations where someone hasn't circled back and I found out that there was a breakdown somewhere and they didn't really represent me and the reputation of what I was extending for them to be introduced to the other person well. And in that case, the the blight might be that I don't do it for them anymore. But I'd say on a big scale or macro level, no. What about you, since you understand? I mean, my greatest insecurity growing up was that I knew so many diverse groups of people, but I was always the last one called to the party. You and I have connected about this before, and oh, that yeah. I understand entirely. I mean, you know, when when you when you keep as busy as you do, you know, it's easy for people to just assume you're already being taken care of, and why invite Dara? She's probably already at another group. Yep. Right? Yeah, I remember that moment and connecting with you when we had a first conversation and that meant so much to me because you hit on the nail something I had never really put words to, but that feeling of there's sort of a cyclical nature to it, at least for from my experience where you pour so much out and you're constantly playing social chair and bringing everyone together and then you sit back and you wait for the invitations and they don't come and it and it hurts. It really hurts and as I've grown, I have become more comfortable expressing to people that I trust to say, you know, it really hurt my feelings that I wasn't included in that. And your response and estimation is exactly the, is the outcome of, 
oh, we just figured you were busy or you were traveling or you already had something going on. And my response tends to be, give me the opportunity to tell you, I can't, but thank you. I hope another time or yes, because I was totally free and sitting at home sad. So, <laughs> What's one way we can hold each other accountable to get over that? Should we post something that says, uh, I'm not that busy. Invite me places. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think for me, what I had to come to terms with was one, just being willing to have those conversations when they presented themselves to let people know what I just said that, you know, I would have loved the invitation and that, you know, it, it did hurt and not to make them feel bad, but just to let them know so that they can hopefully include you the next time. And then two, to make the decision for yourself of, well, is this going to change or impact any of the ways that I am acting? And my answer was no, that I was still going to continue to be the connector in the social chair and, you know, plan my life to a pleasantly full state. And if that meant that people were forgetting, then I was willing to do that in exchange of, you know, not wanting to change anything else. So I don't know. Is there a different way that you would foresee wanting to change that or to be held accountable? I, I don't think so. I, I think I'd, I'd actually make public my vulnerabilities. And I think that would be the first step for me is admitting that that is my insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know you who's listening, I would truly believe that you would do that. Well, I'm supposed to post something at 5.30 p.m. Uh, every day, so I might as well try to loop it into uh, one of my daily posts. Thanks. There you go. Thanks for holding me accountable. No, I, um, I, I, um, as we, as we kind of close down, I want to ask you, what's a question that nobody ever asks you that you feel like answering? Oh my gosh. This, this is hilarious. It's like interviewee, do the work. <laughs> Why not? I mean, you know, my dinners, I, I know. right. Everybody else does the work. That's true. And you also asked me to ask the question of the night that night on the spot. So oh. I should be prepared for this. What's a question? I, I think the first thing that comes to mind, which is what generally is what one should go with, is just truly like, how are you? But truly, like not in a passing way, hmm. in a way of I really want to know I'm carving out space and energy to focus on you and be present in this moment to listen because it can become, it is quite fulfilling to be the person that is so deeply curious as I know you are as well, to go in the world, always collecting stories and ideas and experiences and everything else. And People see that you are well from your energy. They see it from your posts. And none of that is fake. But we are all complex people. And it would be lovely to have more people stop in a private space and say, you know, how are you really? And let me unfold and be vulnerable as I create the space for them as well. Oh, man. That that hits me as I'm... Uh... I'm in a big funk today, and mm. and I even uh, had to call up my mom to talk about it. And so I turn it back on you and say, Dara, how are you? Thank you. 
I also want to dig into what you just said, if it's no. allowed. But no, come on. I, I know. I'm going. I'm definitely going to answer that. I today feel worn out. I am in the space where I'm launching some new projects and hiring new people, and had a seven-year anniversary event for Network Under Forty last night, and am looking at new houses, and I'm about to leave on a trip on Sunday. And there's a lot going on in a way that sometimes I feel is perfectly handled and perfect, the perfect amount. But in the last couple of days, it's just felt like a lot, especially because energetically, many of those things involve me learning new skills or putting a lot of trust or teaching into other people in order to get to an, a homeostasis environment again. So I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but right now I'm in such a depth of new experiences and learning and launching and all these other things that it feels like a lot. And for that, I'm really grateful that it's an end to a week. <laughs> and, and when you feel worn out like that, does it make you want to just give it all up or what is it? No, never. What does that look like? It makes me acutely aware of the importance of self-care and the importance of stepping aside and stepping away and coming back when I have energy you know, I, I think we are often told you must work during X hours. And if it's not done, you've just got to keep trucking and driving through it. And I've come to learn through having burned out before that that is not healthy. And at the end of my life, when I like, I often do what I call deathbed exercises to align and adjust and make sure that the way I'm living is in alignment with my values, that if I'm going to look back, what's most important to me and caring about others and investing in relationships and things of that nature, I can only imagine are going to be a lot more important to me looking retrospectively on my life than was sending that one more email or getting one more project off the ground. So, you know, it, it's balance. We've talked about how I don't love that word, but I'll use it here. It, it is a balance, but I never want to throw in the towel because even though right now I feel wiped, it generally is what makes me thrive. Sometimes I just push it a little too hard and it makes me rejigger a little bit, which is where I am now. And and where does that feeling come from in your body? Like where where is that worn out? Where does it hit you? I feel the tension. I carry my stress in my neck and my shoulders. And so I feel it there. I can feel my posture change. I can feel my body tightening up. And so I start to move my neck to shake it out. I start to stretch. I start to, you know, I, I just try to, physically change the way I'm holding myself. And then I feel it in my breath. Like I will feel that my breath, my breathing is tighter and shorter. And the second I change my breathing pattern, which I just did, <laughs> is the second that I start to feel a shift in a great positive direction. How do you feel now? I mean, it feels great to simply... Talk express. Yeah. yeah. And to share, which I think was my intuitive knowing of that's the question that I need more of because people just assume you're doing well or they don't actually have the energy to share with you to go into it. But I mean, that being said, I'm, can I turn the mic on you and can, can we talk about your funk? Is there anything I can do to support you? Ooh. Ooh. The chief question asker gets turned. <laughs> um I think that I 
Hmm. I just, I just need to be operating in my zone of genius, to quote Gay Hendricks in The Big Leap. I need to be operating in my zone of genius more. Mm. Um, and I'm insecure about promoting that as my zone of genius. You know, my dinners are my world. They are really, like, I'm put on this planet to cook pasta sauce. I'm cool with that. (laughs) And I just don't do a good enough job of reaching out to people to say, hey, I think this could really benefit you. Um, Can you bring me into your company? I'd like to cook you guys pasta sauce. I'd like to help you guys connect. Mm. I'm not not doing that enough. And, And I'm not... You know, I I don't have a partner, right? It's uh, it's all on me, and so I don't have those complementary skills to to break into that insecurity. So you mentioned that you're not spending enough time on in your zone of genius, which you've beautifully described. Where are you spending your time? Um. I'd say I'd say doing the ancillary things that get me into my zone of genius, but those ancillary things I'm not good at, and so therefore it's like a it's like a no sum game. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're doing, you know, we're doing, you know, two or three client dinners a month, but I want to be doing so much more. So much more. Yeah. You're meant uh, to are you, have you, I said you're meant to, I'm, I'm curious, have you considered bringing on a partner? You know, I did a great exercise with, with my buddy Ahad from Denver. And he said, if you were to look into bringing on a sales team, what would those people look like? What kind of skills would you need? And I should probably change the word sales team into, you know, partner or co-founder. Um. Something to think about. Yeah, I I don't want to totally hijack your conversation, but I'd be happy to talk offline with you about some of this stuff. I want to make sure that you are someone who has so much to give in the world and that you feel like you're doing that in spades. I dig it. Well, this, this has been a tremendous value for me to listen to you and feel more inspired. And I know the listeners have gotten as much joy out of it as I. If you could offer some closing words of advice or wisdom to our audience, what would that be? Again, first thing that comes to mind, I'm going to go with, which is debunk the status quo. Pave your own path. Yeah, and care about the people around you. Invest deeply in relationships. Oh, I like that. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I certainly have. Uh, go check out Dara at darabrewstein.com. Uh, go check out her column at uh, on Forbes and so many other great news outlets. Um, if you haven't clicked the subscribe button, do so right now. If you liked what we talked about, share it with your friends. Please email any thoughts, comments, suggestions on the next people we should have on this podcast. I hope you all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, it is your world. Go explore. We'll see you next episode.